Um, okay, so Mark chapter 3. Uh, and let me just get us back, in, uh, back to speed because we took a, a little bit of an excursus and we looked at this, uh, this idea that comes up several times in Mark, which is how are we to think about our finances and our money as followers of Jesus. And so, um, so we kind of fast forwarded and then we've come back. So let's, let me just set us up where we're at. Jesus has come onto the scene He's been baptized, he's started to perform miracles, and he's taught with authority, and people have started to follow him, and the crowds are swelling. Um, They can't get enough of this Jesus. They're coming from all over Israel, traveling hundreds of miles to come see this Jesus, because they've heard stories about him. And right before the passage that we'll look at today, uh, Jesus actually, because of the people, because there's so many people, he has appointed what he calls his 12 apostles. You've probably heard of them as the 12 disciples, and he's selected 12 men to be sort of um, his hands and feet in a unique way to take the message out. So that's where we were when we kind of pressed pause and went on. But one of the things that we see again and again, and we saw it over the last three weeks, is that when Jesus calls somebody to follow him to become a disciple, he asks for their whole life. He doesn't just ask for part of it. He doesn't just ask for Sundays. He asks for the whole thing, the entire life. And so over the last three weeks, as we've looked about one aspect of this sort of radical request on us, we've asked the question of financially, what does Jesus ask of us? What does he ask us to do and to be with this really, really important part of our life, which is our money? So if you weren't able to be here for all three of those sermons, uh, or maybe you're new with us tonight, uh, I just ask you to go back and you can listen online. Press into this question. Uh, This is a question, um, we don't like to talk about it every week at Sedaris, but it's such an important part of who we are, how we turn our whole life over to Jesus, our heart really, that, that we have to engage it. So if you've not been able to engage all three of those messages, we just ask you to go do that on your own time. Keep asking questions of Jesus and ask him what does it mean that he's Lord of your finances. Uh, we've also still got a few of these four-sheet or four-page uh, document that we created, uh, and it's a frequently asked question. Should, should Christians tithe? Uh, There's this idea in the Old Testament of tithing, but should the New Testament church, the New Testament people of God, should they tithe? And what does that look like for us? And we realize that many of us, this is sort of the first church that we've only, uh, first church we've ever had ownership of. And so this is a question that we have to pursue. And so that's what we did the last three weeks. And, and, And if you haven't, grab one of these when you go out, read about this. Look at the passages that, that we talk about on this four-pager. Uh, we hope that it's helpful for you because we want you to have freedom in this area of your life. We don't want it to be the one part of your life that you don't turn over because it touches every part of your life. So that was the last three weeks, and it's this idea that Jesus is Lord over everything if we choose to follow him. And so what does it look like? How do we do that? Hopefully the last three weeks have been educational for you, challenging for you. Um, and, and then we, finally, we'll just ask you, in the month of December, it would be so helpful for us as a community if, if you feel like God is asking you to participate in his mission financially uh, on a recurring monthly basis. We'd, we'd love for you to try to set up whatever God puts on your heart is that amount. Set that recurring gift up online or through the app. It's super easy to do. If you know how to use Facebook, you can, you can figure out how to set up a recurring gift. 
um, because that will help us as we enter into the new year, as we enter into this new phase as a church where we're 100% internally self-sufficient. Uh, that's what we're trying to get. It'll help us so much. So over the month of December, we'd love if you would engage that and, and, and figure out what does that look like for you if you call Sedaris your home, okay? Good, good. So uh, one common theme that we saw over these three weeks, uh, over these three stories uh, about finances was this, uh, that Jesus is radical. He had a radical view of money. He had a radical view of how we should use our money. And he really has a radical view on everything in this life. That's because Jesus is radical. He had a radical message. No one taught the things that he taught. No one spoke the way that he spoke. No one explained salvation by grace alone the way that Jesus explained salvation by grace alone. He was totally radical. He had a radical power. We see that again and again and again. He was healing people of physical diseases. He was literally changing the biology of their body through the power of the Spirit that was in him. He performed miracles, countless miracles, and he also performed exorcisms, which is he released people from the power of unclean spirits. And he did this thousands upon thousands of times. And we have in the Bible recorded for us just some of those accounts. But we, we, we see these huge sort of sweeping statements that then Jesus went to a, to, into a town and he healed, which means that the stories are numerous, thousands upon thousands of these stories. And Mark will highlight just a few of those to help us to understand what kind of power this was. He had a radical power. And so, it shouldn't surprise us if he has a radical message and a radical power that he has a radical call or a radical understanding of discipleship. And we'll see tonight just how radical his ideas of discipleship were. So I hope you're excited. I'm excited. This is a, this is a fascinating passage as we look at this radical man who asked people to follow him radically. And that's what you did. You either followed him radically or you didn't follow him at all. But even if you didn't follow him, because his power was so radical, you had to come up with radical explanations for why he could do the things that he did. You see, he doesn't leave open for us any non-radical explanations, okay? And so tonight we'll see that his family, his biological family, is encountered with his radical power and they come up with a radical explanation. Then we'll also see tonight that the religious elite from Jerusalem come into town and they come up with a radical explanation for this radical power. Now here's what I, I want you to be really careful of as you hear the explanations that his family and the religious elite come up with. Don't say to yourself, don't assume that his family or the scribes are just way off. Don't say, well, that's a little extreme, don't you think? We could probably come up with a simpler explanation. Because in saying that, what you're revealing is that you don't fully understand the radical power with which Jesus was doing his ministry. His family and the scribes, they come up with two of only four possible explanations that we can give about Jesus' radical power. How is it that he was doing what he was doing? Two of the four. 
And of those four, these are not included. That Jesus was just a really good man. That he was trying to do good work for the poor and the outcast. That's not radical enough to explain his power. Or that he was a brilliant teacher of morality and ethics and religion. Or that he was just one of many spiritual revolutionaries that have walked the earth. It doesn't account for the power that Jesus was showing. Thousands and thousands of people experienced the power, told stories of what had happened, which is why people were flocking to him. The things that he actually did and he actually said, they cannot be explained with a simple, reasonable explanation. C.S. Lewis famously said it this way. He said, these are the options. That Jesus is either the most amazing and terrible liar that the world has ever known, or he's a diagnosable lunatic. That he literally thought he was something that he wasn't. That he was delusional. Many people have been delusional and thought that they were God. Or, and this is related to number two, that his delusion was because he was trapped or empowered by an evil, unclean spirit. The same spirits that he would release people from. That maybe this is why he was delusional. And then the fourth option is that he was actually Lord. That he was who he said he was. That he's Lord of all. The Son of God. The Messiah. Those are the options. And his radical power don't, doesn't leave any other simple, non-radical explanation. It just doesn't make sense. So let's read the passage and see what happens when his family and the scribes encounter these stories of Jesus' radical power. Let's see what these explanations are for them. Now I want, I want you to see something as we read through this. Uh, we're going to start with, a, with a, just a little scene with Jesus and his family. And then it's going to break off and we're going to hear a story about the scribes. And then it's going to pick up the family story again. And I think that's intentional by Mark. Uh, it's called the sandwich effect. He, he's put on either side stories of the family. And I'll explain, I think, why he's done that later. But they sort of inform each other, okay? And one thing just to say up front, one group of people knows Jesus intimately. They know him well. They grew up with him. They raised him. And the other have only heard stories of him. So both, both groups are prone to mis-explanation, okay? So look at verse 20 with me. It says this, Then Jesus went home, back to his hometown, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. There's so many people around that he couldn't eat. And when his family heard of it, they went to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Here's the first explanation. This man that they had grown up with, here we have mother, brothers, sisters of Jesus, and we know that because of the end of the passage, the other half of the sandwich. We see these characters, same characters. Jesus' mother, Mary, brothers and sisters, We don't see his father in this account, presumably because he's already died. 
They've, they've spent so much time with him, and they hear about the things that he's doing, the things that he's saying about himself, and the only explanation that they can come up with is that he has lost his mind. He has lost his mind. And so they stage an intervention. That's what they're doing. They're trying to literally seize him. The word seize is to, is to take him physically from the situation, remove him, that they might help him find his mind again. I mean, this is how intensely concerned for their brother, their son, or their, or their sibling that they were. I want you to, to think about this, and I want you to consider two thoughts here. First is this. If the biblical texts were fabricated, as many assume that it is, many people do not believe that the Bible is historical and, and that it's accurate, uh, but if it were, if this was just a document made up by men who wanted to convince people of this lie or, or this, this thing that they believe, why would they include this story? This isn't flattering to anybody. It's not flattering to Jesus that his own family thought that he was crazy. It's not flattering to Mary, the mother of Jesus, whom's often celebrated. I mean, she literally, if the story's true, became pregnant without having sexual intercourse. So she knows. She was visited by an angel who told her that this son of hers would be special. And yet, even when she sees his radical power, she struggles to understand who he is. It's not flattering for her. It's not flattering for his brothers and sisters. You see how real and how raw the Gospels are. This is a reality here. That even though we know there's something special about our brother, because our moms told us, even though an angel's visited me and I know my son was born, conceived by the Spirit, even so, it is so hard for me to believe the things that he's saying and to believe the things that he's doing. The Bible is not a fairy tale. It's not a propaganda piece written by deceitful man. It's real life, and you see the struggle and the tension in real life because the radical nature of what Jesus was doing was beyond explanation. The other thing I, I hope this shows you is that particularly when we look at Mary, who, by the end of her life, had come to not only change her explanation of who Jesus was, but to worship him as her own Lord and Savior and Messiah. Just think how radical of a shift that is. Moreover, several of Jesus' brothers and sisters, presumably, came to faith in Jesus and began to worship their brother as Lord, Savior, Messiah, the Son of God. What, what kind of power must it have been? So you see, even for these people intimately close to Jesus, there's a process that they go through to come to faith in Jesus. So, so maybe you're in that process right now. I want that to be encouraging to you. That sometimes... It takes more than one visit to church. Maybe it takes more than reading the Gospels once. Maybe you need to read it many times. But the thing that we see again and again and again 
with his brothers, with his sisters, with his mother, is that eventually they come around to believing that indeed this son, this brother, is the Messiah, is the risen Lord, is the Savior of their personal sin, is the Redeemer of Israel. And the thing that changed it for them, from what we can tell from the flow of the narrative, is the resurrection. The resurrection from the grave seemed to change everything for those closest to him. We see in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, which is, Acts is just an account of the beginning of the Jesus movement after his death, resurrection, and ascension. It talks about how the church grew. We see in the upper room with the disciples, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and brothers and sisters of Jesus. They were there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down upon all the peoples and they believed and began to speak in other languages. And then we see James, the brother of Jesus, become a prominent figure in the early Jerusalem church, and he's even written one of the letters that's included in the New Testament. And it's all because they experienced the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe that's what you need to study more. You know, some people came to believe in Jesus without the resurrection, but for many it takes studying the resurrection to really realize that he is who he said he was. Maybe you need to spend tens of hours studying the resurrection. And so actually what Ryan and I are going to do is we're going we're to curate uh, a, a resource list for you. If you need to just study the resurrection, if you've never really just looked at the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to put together a list, a place to start and to start studying. Is the resurrection true? Because it's one thing to say that you need to investigate, but, but for many of us, we're like, where do we start? So we're going to help you out. We're going to, we're going to post that on the Facebook group so you can join the Facebook group. We'll probably put it on the Facebook page as well um, just so you can have a list of resources to help you study the resurrection because it's the thing that changed everything for his family. And it's been changing everything for millions of people throughout history. Okay, let's look at the second explanation that comes out of this text for the radical power of Jesus. Read with me, verse 22 says this. And the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and, the, and, and by the prince of demons. That's how he casts out the demons. So the scribes were these religious elites that come from the capital city of Jerusalem and they come into town. They're sent there by probably people that are even more elite than them to come try to figure out and probably try to trap Jesus to figure out what is going on. We hear these stories of this man with this incredible power. Uh, and they really focus here on the exorcisms that Jesus was conducting when he was casting out demons, and we've seen a couple accounts of those already in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and they come up with this explanation. Their explanation goes something like this. Jesus clearly has power over unclean spirits. So they're denying the fact that he is exercising demons. That's important here. He clearly has power over unclean spirits to tell them where to go and what to do. And so, that must mean that he's their boss. That's their argument. It's a radical explanation, but in some sense, it makes a lot more sense than he's just a really nice guy. It's radical. 
And so they call him Beelzebul, which is sort of this folklorish name that has come up in the culture at the time, uh, which is just another way of saying, and we see it in the next passage, the prince of demons. So demons were unclean spirits, and there were many of them, uh, and they were formed into an organized company, sort of an army of sorts, and so there was this hierarchical power even in the structure of unclean spirits. And so they call him Beelzebul, the prince of these demons. He's their boss. That's how he's telling them what to do. They listen to him because he's the boss. Now remember, these are the smartest men in the country, and they're trying to come up with as reasonable an explanation as humanly possible. But they're trying to come up with an explanation apart from invoking God's power into their explanation. You see that? They're saying, we can come up with any explanation to explain this this clear power that this man has, except we cannot invoke the power of God. And I bring this up because this is exactly what happens in our society today. This is exactly what happens. The intellectual elites of our country and our Western civilization, they have decided to craft a box. And they have said, we can explain and we should try to explain everything in the world, including Jesus, including this miraculous movement of people started by this carpenter, but we have to explain it within this box. And the one thing we cannot put in this box is the power of God. We have to leave it outside the box. Because as soon as we invoke that as an explanation, now we've lost our power. And so they've tried to explain everything in God's creation inside this box without ever saying that the power of God did it. And they sit in a room and they work and they work and they work to come up with the best explanations. These are smart men and women. These, they're trying to be reasonable, they're trying to be logical, and they come up with explanations for everything. How the universe was created, how the earth was formed, how species came to be, how humankind uh, surfaced from amongst that, how the religious and spiritual mind then birthed out of the natural order, how Christianity became what it is today. Libraries are full of these kinds of explanations that all fit into this box. Because they're brilliant, some of these explanations make some sense. And we should expect that they'd make sense. This is not a terrible explanation that these scribes give based on the circumstances. It's just the wrong explanation. And so just because an explanation is well said and well argued and well reasoned doesn't mean it's the right explanation. And in our society and with the scribes, they'd missed one big thing. God exists and he's given his power in the world. Now look at how Jesus responds to these efforts of these brilliant men and women. He does the same today. He says, remember, you don't have all the answers. Let me enlighten you. Now, before, before we see what Jesus says, let's just remember, because it's like we can skim right over, let's just remember what these scribes have just said 
to this Jesus. They've just called him the devil. Okay? (laughs) Do you see? Like, they just show up and call him the devil. How do you think he's going to respond to that? How would you respond if somebody called you the devil? Well, I wouldn't respond very well. But luckily, I can't save anybody. Jesus can. Look how he responds. He does not respond in kind. He does not turn to name-calling. He does not disregard them. Fear does not drive or motivate his response. Love does. And you need to understand just how insulting this would have been and that he turns and he calmly begins to reason with them. He goes to their playing field. You see, these are the smartest men in the land and he goes and he reasons with them. He uses the logic. He doesn't have to do any of this. But in love, he turns to these men and with grace and truth, he reasons with them. Let's see what he says. Verse 23. And Jesus called to them called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. You see, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is logically dismissing their radical explanation. He's showing them, good try, but it doesn't really make sense. He's saying that Satan has an army. Yes, they've agreed to that. An army of unclean spirits. We call them demons. You could call this house Beelzebul. The idea of a house here is not just a physical structure, but a house as in sort of my people's. And if the ruler of that house, of that army, starts attacking his own soldiers, starts casting them out, starts a civil war, how should we expect that that house, that army, will survive? Well, the answer is they won't stand for long. Eventually, it will fall. And so why would I, Jesus says, if I'm the prince of demons... Why would I do that to my own army, my own house? And even if I did do that, then you don't even need to worry about me because eventually my house will fall. My army will kill itself. You see, it's it's not logical. But see, after tearing down their logical argument, Jesus provides an alternate logical argument. And that's when he talks about a strong man entering a house and binding the master of the house before he plunders the house. And Jesus is saying, I am that strong man. I'm not the master of the house. I'm stronger than the master of the house. And quite easily, I come in and I bind that master up and then I take what I want. I cast out what I want. I'm the strong man. That's a better explanation. Now, there's a very important transition into verse 30. And you might miss it here. So Jesus has responded in grace to their radical explanation, calling him the devil. He's responded in grace by helping these men to see the illogic of their own reasoning. That's grace. 
He's acting in grace here. He doesn't have to do this, but he gives it as a free gift. He's like, I'm going to help you understand. But he must also, in truth, tell them the consequence of said error. He must, he must in truth, explain to them and update their reasoning. See, God always works like this. Jesus always worked like this. We should always work like this. He responds in grace and truth. Both are necessary because he knows it's not just enough to get them to realize their error, but they must repent of their error and change their understanding. So look at verse 28 with me. Jesus says this, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The flow of the narrative goes like this. Well, the flow of the narrative and the heart of God throughout Scripture, we see this. God wants to save all people. And I don't think that these scribes have actually already committed this sin that Jesus just speaks of. They have not already crossed the line. They're standing right at the edge of the cliff. They're about to, which is exactly why Jesus warns them. See, this is so important to understand the grace of God. They're at the edge of the cliff. Yes, they've already done something wrong, they've already sinned, but they have not committed the unforgivable sin. And so Jesus warns them. In grace, he warns them. In truth, he warns them that if you do not turn from this path, if you persist in this way of thinking and reasoning about my power, this will become an unforgivable, eternal sin. And, and this, this, this is the key to understanding what's happening here. And, and, and to understand how a thing comes to a forgivable sin to an unforgivable sin. Before, when, the, when the scribes first start talking, okay, they're, they're coming up with an explanation in the darkness of ignorance. They don't actually know. And they've come up with a bad explanation. But now that Jesus has corrected their thinking... Now that they're standing face to face with the Son of God, now that the power of the Holy Spirit is in front of them and they, in a sense, can see it for what it is, they are now standing in the light of truth. And to now reject or to give the same argument, the same explanation in the light of truth is a totally different thing. This is so important to catch here. Jesus, Jesus is helping them understand that, yes, grace can save all sin. Don't miss that. See, we, we want to just sort of fly by the all sin, which just shows you how much our culture is indebted to the truth of Christianity, to the gospel. That we fly right by the statement that all sins can be forgiven except one, and we tend to focus on the one thing that can't be forgiven. Why? Because we've grown up in a gospel-inspired culture that understands God's forgiveness. See, see, in other cultures, they wouldn't fly by, wait, what? All sins can be forgiven? I can murder and be forgiven? Yeah. Except for this one thing. You could say it like this. Blasphemy is a sin regardless, but blasphemy when you are standing face to face with the truth is unforgivable. 
Now, for some of us, this might be terrifying. For others, it might be liberating. Let, let, me, let me give you an illustration here. Many, including myself, struggle at times to enjoy and appreciate classical music. True or not true? We, we can struggle at times to appreciate classical music. So some folks uh, even will outright slander that will blaspheme cla- classical music, that will claim that it's dull, that it's boring, that it's not beautiful. You met those people? And, and, and probably most of us are, are somewhere in between, okay? And, and we're in between, including myself, because we're ignorant. Primarily, we're ignorant to the beauty, the complexity, the mastery of classical music, and so we end up saying false things about it, like it's boring or it's dull. Most of us have probably never been to a live performance of classical music. We're ignorant to it. And, and so if, if one of us were to slander classical music, if we were uninterested in it, that's in a sense forgivable, right? Because we're ignorant. We don't really realize its true beauty. Now, imagine, thought experiment, we like to do those here at Sedaris. Imagine that you hop in Bill and Ted's phone booth and you go back to 1736 Germany. And you are matched up with Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the greatest composers of all time. And you're given a week to be tutored by him, to be taught about the intricacies of classical music and composition. And then on on your last night there, he takes you into the city to the greatest performance hall in all of Germany, and you sit side by side as they play one of his great pieces, and he explains to you what's going on, the inspiration behind it, the complexity. And then at the end of the night, he asks you, well, what do you think about classical music now? And you look him in the eye, and you say, it's a little boring. Or even worse, sounds like devil music to me. Could you imagine that? Because your ignorance is gone to a degree. You no longer can say you've never seen it performed live. You no longer can say, I don't understand what's going on here. You can't say it. You've now committed, in the classical music world, the unforgivable sin, and you will never be invited back. <laughs> to that performance hall, or any performance hall in the world, if Young Ben has anything to say about it. Young Ben's our, he can teach you. He's our expert in classical music. So N.T. Wright talks about this unforgivable sin in this way. He says this, it's like conspiracy theorists, they've convinced themselves that the conspiracy is afoot, and so they... uh, So they've become blind to the real evidence. And he goes on to say, if you convince yourself that the only doctor who can operate on your rare tumor is in fact a sadistic murderer, you'll never let him operate and that tumor will kill you. You see that? If we, Jesus is saying, allow ourselves in light of the truth, in light of the reality exposed to us, in light of meeting with the Holy Spirit for real, continue to say that that spirit is unclean and is the spirit of Beelzebul, that is unforgivable. There comes a time when ignorance is no longer a good answer for why you don't believe. Now, feigned in ignorance, too. 
that's not ignorance at all. Choosing not to enter into a consideration of who Jesus was, that is not true ignorance. That is a choice. So look again at verse 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now why is this one blasphemy? I'm going to kind of spiral in here, okay, because it's so important that we understand this. This one blasphemy, why is this one so serious the whole, against the Holy Spirit? Why is blasphemy in itself so serious? More than any physical act that we can do. Well, blasphemy, as we said, it, it's slander in word or deed. It's slander. And slander is to speak non-truth, okay? And here's what we have to understand. We were created to worship God. Why did God create humanity? That we might reverberate truth about Him. That, that's our job. Our job is to reverberate truth about who God is. That's why He created us. That's what it means to be created in God's image, is that we actually reverberate truth about God in word and deed. That's why we sing songs of praise. That why we, that's why we speak about the Word of God and, and seek to understand it and explain it. That's why we have conversations about the truth of God. That's why we work as those created to work as God works, because we're reverberating. To worship is to reverberate God's glory back into the atmosphere. And so the opposite of worship is to not reverberate. Actually, it's not to not reverberate, it's to reverberate falsehood when truth is given to us. You see how that's actually the opposite? So just keeping quiet isn't even as bad as reverberating blasphemy and slander against the Spirit of God. Because we're doing the exact opposite of what we were created to do. And so when we see this radical power of the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus and we attribute those positive deeds to evil spirits, including the prince of demons, Beelzebul, is to miss the mark completely. We've just said God, that, that something that God did was done by the thing furthest from God. That's why it's unforgivable. Now, think about this with me at an even deeper level. We're going down a third spiral here, okay? What is a demon? A demon, if you don't know, a demon or an unclean spirit is just a fallen angel. So God created all things, and the first thing he created was this army of angels, and their whole job was to worship God in the heavenlies. And as far as we can tell, something happened, and this most powerful angel may have heard him called Lucifer, decides that he wants to rebel against God and his duty to reverberate God's glory because he wants glory for himself. And he falls. And when he falls from glory, he brings with him a third of these angels. This becomes the context for this idea of demons, these unclean spirits that are alive and active in the world. So when Satan fell, when he was cast out from the heavenly realm, when he was forced out because he refused to do what he was created to do, give God glory, because pride 
came before the fall, and it always does. Because of that, these demons right now act in this world because God is, for in His providence, allowing it to happen. And their entire job is to get human beings to stop doing what they're meant to do, which is reverberate truth about God. That's their job. And there's good angels that are doing their job, acting in the power of their design and reverberating truth. So you see, see how this works. Angels and demons. One is working to do exactly what they're created to do. One is working to do the exact opposite, which is poisoning all truth about God that comes out of the lips of men, the words of men, the deeds of men. That's why Satan is called the accuser or the father of lies. That's what the actual word means in the Old Testament. Satan means accuser. He is the father of lies. And so, I bring all this up to just, when, when, when Jesus is called, now think of his grace, when Jesus is called the prince of demons, when he's really empowered by the spirit of the triune God who created all things, including demons, think of how big of a category error that is. You see, it's not like seeing Steve Jobs in the supermarket and walking up to him and say, man, I love the new windows. Great software. That's, see, that's not a category error because you're just misrepresenting a good and a bad angel. I'll let you decide which is which. You see, that's, that's not a category. A category error, and some of you might miss this, uh, is, is running into the real Michelangelo, the great artist, painter of the Renaissance, and walking up to him and saying, man, I loved your work in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was great performance, man. Cowabunga. Lost you? Okay. <laughs> That's a category error. We, we've, we've said the greatest artist maybe in the history of the world is really an actor playing a mutated turtle wearing an orange headband. See, that's a category error. And so to even put God, to even mention the name Satan in the same sentence as Jesus is blasphemy in itself. Because Jesus is not just an angel, he's the king and the creator of all angels. You see how much of a category error that is? You see how blasphemous it is to say Jesus is that? He's not, he's so far beyond even an angel. I mean, we've really messed it up. I hope this is starting to make sense. So if we persist in blaspheming the Spirit of God by calling Him an unclean spirit, saying that Jesus was empowered not by the third person of the Trinity, but by fallen angels, we have actually entered into the realm of being like the demons. If we persist in the face of truth, if we persist. Because you see, and just look, look back with me in, 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 chap, in verse 11 of chapter 3. Jesus is casting out a demon, and, and 11 says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, whenever the demons saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. The demons knew who Jesus was. They were not in ignorance, but they chose to rebel against him. And so when we come face to face, when we come out of ignorance and into the light and we see Jesus for who he is, when the Spirit of God reveals him and we still blaspheme by saying he's not who the Spirit of God has proven that he is, we too willfully rebel against God and we have acted against him 
We have committed the unforgivable sin, and we too will experience forever the place that God created initially for the fallen angels, which the Bible calls the lake of fire, because we've become like them. If the Spirit of God, or sorry, if the Spirit of Beelzebub tries to convince you that he's got this great lake retreat vacation planned for you, and it'll go on forever, don't go. He's lying to you. You want to be in the presence of God, reverberating His glory for all eternity. It's what you're created to do. It's the greatest thing that you could do. And all sins will be forgiven. And anybody can enter into that space except for unrepentant slanderers of God's Spirit. Because how can a man or a woman sit and sing in the symphony of the saints if he does not or she does not acknowledge who God is? It makes no sense. And so you have to repent. You have to turn back. Now, very quickly, this very last section, Jesus says one more very radical thing. He says this, verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent for Jesus, they called him to them, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? And looking around at those that sat around him, nearest to him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was so radical in his call to discipleship. He redefines right here what family actually is. And it's those who do the will of God. He turns in this moment, at least, away from his bio, bio, biological family, and he redefines what family means, and he says, it's whoever does the will of God. And what's the will of God? Reverberating the truth that God has given to us through the Spirit that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he looks at those closest to him. They've got it. They've understood. They're reverberating truth. They're following me. They understand to a degree, who I am. Not in full, because I haven't died and, and risen from the grave, but they are following the way, the truth, the life. They're doing what God's created them to do. Here is my family. This is radical. And it does cause divide. For anyone who joins into this radical mission of Jesus, you will experience at times the pain of discipleship. You've maybe heard it said, blood is thicker than water, which is basically just a way of saying nothing trumps biological family. Blood is thicker than water. Jesus actually comes and redefines that as well. He says, yes, but nothing is thicker than the blood of mission. And those who follow me on my mission, they are connected to me in the only meaningful, lasting way that there is on this earth. So I'm careful who I call brother and who I call sister because Jesus has told me those are the people who bleed for the mission of God. I told you I'd explain why this sandwich exists. I think the sandwich exists with family, scribes, family because Mark wants to show us, he wants to give us hope that even for these people who at first got it wrong about Jesus, 
You see, you see, the church would have known that Mary was a part of the Jesus movement and James was a part of the Jesus movement and other brothers and sisters of Jesus were a part of the movement. He wants people to see that no matter if we get the explanation wrong at first, God in his grace gives us another chance. He wants us to come out of ignorance, yes, and when we see the light of Jesus, he'll give us another chance. So this is a reminder for you. If you're struggling to explain the radical phenomenon that is Jesus, time has not yet run out on you. Keep considering. Reconsider. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. If somebody in your family struggles to know that the radical power of Jesus came because he had the Spirit of God in him and with him, ask them to reconsider. Ask them to study the resurrection. Study the resurrection with them. For Jesus' own family, it took time and prayer and ultimately the proof of the resurrection for them to go from the outside to the inner sanctuary with Jesus. That might be you. That might be a friend of yours. That might be a family. Don't give up. Reveal the truth to them and ask them to engage it honestly. Let's pray. Father God, we are slanderers. We're blasphemers. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is perfect. And I hope that we hear today in this passage that you forgive all sins, all blasphemies, all slander, except if we refuse to repent about what we've said about your son Jesus, about the spirit that indwelt him, by the, by the spirit that gave him the power. God, help us to see that more clearly. Help us to come into the light of truth. And when we see the truth of the spirit of God as he reveals it to us, May we say and reverberate truth back to him. May we sing with our lips. May we praise with our hands. May we say with every part of our life and our being that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer of all people and all things. Praise be his name. Amen.